Okay. Well, uh, we are going to continue our discussion in 1 John. We are going into chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And if you recall last week, we focused on the doctrinal tests of genuine fellowship. And remember, there were two doctrinal tests that we talked about. The understanding of who Christ is, those first four verses, where John was very clear in establishing the truth of who Christ is. And then our second was the understanding of sin, right? That key doctrinal understanding of what sin is. Now, this week, John takes us into what we're calling the moral tests of genuine fellowship. And so we're going to talk about how we're keeping God's commands, so that's our obedience, and how we're loving others. And also he's going to touch on how much we love the world. So these are these moral tests of genuine fellowship. Another way to look at it was last week would sort of be the conditions for fellowship from a doctrinal perspective. And today we're going to talk about our conduct in fellowship, right, our behavior. So, before we go any further, let's go ahead and take our text and uh, read it. We are in 1 John chapter 2, and we will be reading verses 3 through 17. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, or, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray and we ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you for the time this morning to dive into your word. 
I pray that you would give us wisdom uh, as we look into this passage. Open our minds and our hearts uh, to your truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as you look at this passage, you'll notice that there is no word assurance. That word assurance doesn't really appear in this passage, but it's really very much about assurance. And the reason is there's a word that appears eight times in this passage. You know what that word is? No, K-N-O-W, right? It actually appears 36 times in this letter. So it's a very common theme that John has, right? He is very much about proclaiming the truth. And he wants his readers to know it uh, and to live it. So truth and knowing the truth and applying it's a very key theme here. But as believers, sometimes we struggle with our assurance. And however, but when we're saved, Scripture does tell us some very key truths that we need to be reminded of, that we have assurance of salvation. Uh, John 1.12, but as many has received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. It's a great promise. Uh, John 6.37 says, Jesus is saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Those are great promises to, to be reminded of. So our assurance comes in a couple ways. One is it comes objectively, and it comes objectively from the Word of God, the promises that we read in God's Word. But it also comes subjectively. And it comes subjectively from the Spirit working in our lives as we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And we also know from Scripture that those who are truly saved will never lose their salvation. That's another wonderful truth. At John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, at the same time, God's Word also commands the believer to examine his or her life uh, just to see if that salvation that's claimed is actually authentic. Second uh, Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. In 2 Peter 1.10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So I say all this is that if salvation is indeed genuine, there will be signs of it in a person's life, both in our attitudes and in our behavior. The Bible refers to these attitudes as the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So what we see here in these verses in 1 John chapter 2 that John is addressing assurance from the perspective of obedience. That's a key theme here. So if we look at verse 3, he starts by saying, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So here John is starting out by stating his test right at the beginning. And he uses, this is his first term of time using this word know, K-N-O-W. And he's using words of certainty here, isn't he? He's not saying, well, we think we know or we wish we know. He's saying we know. It's, it's certain. And this is not some mystical or hidden knowledge 
like what was common in the day in, uh, amongst the Gnostics and the influence of them. So assurance comes from obeying God's commandments in Scripture. And, of course, that is not a perfect obedience. Only Christ did that here on earth, right? So we're not perfect in our obedience, but as a pattern of life, uh, that is what our, we will be known as, as obedient followers of Christ. And you remember last week when we talked about that term walk, walking in light and walking in darkness, that walk is a pattern of life. It is an ongoing pattern. Now this phrase, have come to know him, this kind of indicates looking back on a past action. It's, a pa- it's in the past tense, but it means that it has continuing results in the present. It's not just something that happened and doesn't have ongoing effect. It has ongoing effect in the present. And that past action is referring to uh, believing in Christ, right? One's salvation. So looking back on one's salvation, we uh, keep his commandments. Now, it's important that we don't mix the precedence here between keeping his commandments and knowing him in our salvation. This is really important. John's not saying that somehow keeping commandments, God's commandments, will result in salvation, right? That's impossible. In our human bodies, we can't do that. That's why Christ came, right? Rather, he's saying that obedience to his commands as a pattern of life, our walk, is an indicator of our faith. It starts with our faith in Christ, and our obedience is an indicator or an outcome of our faith. John MacArthur says, Under the new covenant, God accepts believers loving and sincere, albeit imperfect, obedience, and forgives their disobedience. By his grace, they display a consistent, heartfelt devotion to the mind of Christ is revealed in the word. That willing obedience to scripture in daily living is a reliable indicator both to self and others that one has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I couldn't say it any better. Now if we go into verse 4 and 5, it's, he says, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has truly been perfected. So here, John is applying the test. And you remember, John was called uh, by Jesus as a son of thunder. Here he's thundering again. In his, how old, how old is he, 80s plus? He's thundering again. He comes down hard on those who claim to know Christ, but they're not keeping his commandments. He's calling them out. This is similar back to chapter 1, verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He makes a clear distinction here between those who only profess to know God versus those who actually keep his word. And he says these false professors, they don't keep his commandments. They're liars. Truth's not in them. Think about... Christ, when he uh, responded to Pilate in John 18, 37, he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That, that combining of truth and obedience 
is, is very evident. So those whose faith is genuine will obey the truth. James 2.17 says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So obedience comes with faith. Now verse 5 applies this test for assurance in a positive way. So here's the contrast we see again with John. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Now, the phrase love of God is a form that's probably better understood as love for God. Now, some of your translations may say that. John describes this love as perfected. Now, this is not in the sense of human perfection, uh, but rather salvation accomplishment. In fact, the word for perfected here is translated elsewhere in John's gospel as accomplished. So think of it as accomplished. Our love for God will reflect the accomplished work of God in our lives. So that term perfected does not mean human perfection. Now, this love is not some emotional or mystical experience. This is obedience as scripture defines it. Right? We see that in the fruit of the Spirit. Those are observable things. It's not just some mystical experience that we claim it. So picking up at the end of verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So Jesus is the perfect role model for, the, uh, for obeying the Father. So our walk... Uh, our manner of life should be patterned after Christ. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me can do nothing. So our obedience will not be perfect like Jesus' was, but we should be walking in the light of truth and holiness, obeying his commands, and because of our love for the truth, because of our love for the Father, because of our love for others. So this is a key to assurance of salvation. So it starts with faith in Christ, and then out of a love for him, and his commands, we obey him. And that results in assurance of salvation. I put it this way in the handout. Saving faith leads to grace-fueled obedience and love for others, which results in assurance. Saving faith leads to grace-fueled obedience and love for others, which results in assurance. It's not the other way around where we're seeking assurance just for assurance's sake. Rather, assurance comes as a result of our obedience. So, verses 3 through 6 focused on obedience, and now John is going to shift his focus to love for the rest of our uh, time here on verses 7 through 17. So, love is... uh, key indicator of a genuine believer. Is it not? 
arguably it's the preeminent mark of a true believer is love. Love of God, love of his righteousness, love for others. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, Matthew 20, 22, 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That can't be any more clear from the Lord himself, that we're to love God and we're to love others. And remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he argued for the supremacy of love over all the gifts. So this passage here in verse, verses 7 through 11 described love in three different ways. So verse 7, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. So the first way love is described is, a, is an old commandment. It's an old commandment. Here uh, John begins with an affirmation of his love for his readers. He uses that word beloved. Isn't that just a, 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 a great indicator of his love for his readers? They're very dear friends to him. I mean, it's this term of endearment. It didn't have to be there, but he did it. And it's a, it's a great reminder of his love for his readers. He says the commandment to love was not a new commandment in one sense, but actually an old commandment. And his readers would have known from the Old Testament that uh, about loving one another. That's not a new concept to them. That's the idea here, is that they've been given commands uh, from the beginning. It's likely also that John wrote his gospel account before this letter. So it's very possible that these readers also had his gospel account. And in that gospel account, we hear from Jesus in John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as, if I, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So in this sense, it's an old commandment because they should already know. This is not a new thing for them. John Piper says, for John, the commandment of love belongs to what people should hear from the beginning. It's not an optional stage two in Christian growth. The gospel contains not only the commandment to trust Jesus, but also the commandment in the power of that trust to be changed into a loving person. A loving nature is part, comes as part of a life that's transformed by Christ. It's a natural outcome of our relationship with Christ. Now, verse 8, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him, and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. So the second way love is described is as a new commandment. Now, on the surface, you might be thinking, well, John's contradicting himself here, isn't he? He just wrote in the prior verse that it's an old commandment. Now he's saying it's a new commandment. So which one is it? Well, the answer is both. It's yes. <laughs> And the, the, the language here can make it appear as some sort of contradiction, but the word new here, it, it, it indicates something that's fresh in essence or quality. It, it's not necessarily chronological in the sense that the new is replacing the old. 
it, it, uh, the ESV translation's a little more helpful here. It says, at the same time. So this newness that John is indicating here is not so much found in the words per se, but in the illustration of love. And that's described in the expression that follows. It says, which is true in him, right, in Christ. The commandment to love was taught in the Old Testament. That's not new. But it had never been so plainly manifested as it was in the incarnation of Christ. That's the new part here. Christ coming on the scene. The, the commandment to love is also new because of its work in believers, in the lives of believers. In Christ, believers are new creatures, new creations, right? That's new. And have been equipped to love others as Christ loved the church. And he also goes on to say that because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The light here is Christ. Uh, he's inaugurated his kingdom, and the light is already shining with his spiritual kingdom today. Now, of course, right now, that light coexists with the darkness of Satan's kingdom here on earth. But that will change one day, right? And Christ will reign throughout eternity, and that is our hope. Now, as believers, we also hold to the promise of Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That is a great promise, even today. Zane Hodges says, Christ's incarnation brought a light into the world which can never be extinguished. The love he manifested and taught his disciples to manifest is a characteristic of the age to come. It is the darkness of the present world and all its hatred which is destined to disappear forever. So verses 9 through 11, he continues. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So here, the third way love is described is a way of life. It's a way of life. John is applying this test now of supernatural love to those who claim to be Christians. Think about it. It's really meaningless for someone to say that they're in the light, but at the same time they hate the brother. John says they're in darkness. And that's the opposite of the light of Christ that we've been reading about. Now, on the other hand, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. So here we see these contrasts again. Those who love and obey God's word, they express selfless love uh, toward others. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. This is an interesting phrase. In the New Testament, stumbling often refers to sinning. And here, stumbling could refer to one's own self or others. And the more common use in Scripture is that it's something that causes others to sin. So with that interpretation, the person who truly loves others will not cause others to sin, to be a stumbling for uh, their fellow brother. So John reiterates this, that anyone who hates his brother is in the darkness 
walks in the darkness. Someone's in the darkness, he, he explains it here. They won't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. Compare that to someone that's in physical darkness. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they are. And that's spiritually the description he's giving here. Now, this next set of verses that we move into, verses 12 through 14, it's an interesting set. It's this poetic-like verses that John writes that it's kind of viewed as parenthetical or sort of a pause in his letter. And here he's not making any contrasts like he had been doing so much up to this point. He pauses from that. And instead, he's going to take time to reassure his believers, his readers, their believers, about their own relationship with God. Obviously, not everyone he was writing to was at the same level of spiritual maturity. That's true of readers of this today. Um, But in these three verses, there are like three groups of people that he addresses. He addresses children, young men, and fathers. And they're addressed twice, interestingly. He says the words, I'm writing to you, or I have written to you, six times in these three verses. And it's really a way to emphatically state that he is writing to his readers, the believers, um, those in God's family. He's writing it directly to them. And, and rather than taking these verses in order, I've tried to figure out the best way to kind of work through this. Uh, I got some help from some other commentators to kind of group these. We're going to look at children, we'll look at the young men, and then we'll look at the fathers, which is hopping around a little bit. So let's, let's do that. So in verse 12, he starts with, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. So that term, little children, it appears in 1 John seven times. He, he likes to use that term. It, it, and here it means born ones. It, it's commonly used in the New Testament to describe believers um, as children of God. So with this, first verse of this uh, set here, he's likely addressing all believers. And no matter where they are in their spiritual maturity, they've been forgiven of their sins. And that is certainly true of all believers, regardless of the maturity, right? And he said this forgiveness is not because of their own abilities or their own merit. It's because, he says, for his name's sake. He's because of God's glory. It's for God's glory that he has forgiven us of our sins. So looking at that other reference to little children is at the end of verse 13. He says, I have written to you children because you know the Father. Now, interestingly, the, the word little children here is actually different than in verse 12. The, the, the actual words uh, underneath. It, here it's referring specifically to young children. And that's possibly indicating that a reference to those who are newer in the faith or they're spiritually less mature. And that's what I'm going with. Uh, there are different ways to interpret this, but I, I, I think there's some value in understanding it that way of addressing those who are newer in their faith. But, I mean, even if he's still referring to all believers, the truth remains that believers have known the Father, uh, which is a natural result of their redemption. 
And here, the point is, is that they have this new understanding of who God is, uh, their fatherhood over them. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now this second group mentioned is young men. Now first in the middle of verse 13, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And also at the end of verse 14, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So the second stage of spiritual growth is represented by young men who are engaging the battle of living out their faith. Right? It's because the fact that the, God, the word of God resides or abides in them, they're strong in doctrinal truth. And as a result, they've overcome the evil one, Satan. And armed with that truth, then they can refute error and defend the truth. So note here that John does not just have men in mind here. You may already know and understand that, but that's a common way of the way this is worded back in the day. Back in, in fact, Paul used a Jewish custom when he would address adults widely uh, with titles such as brothers. Uh, but all along, he has the entire church in mind including women. So women are not excluded in these references. So just uh, be aware of that. Now this third group is fathers. At the beginning of verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And then it's repeated almost verbatim at the beginning of verse 14, I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Now the meaning of fathers here is likely those who are mature in their faith, more spiritually mature people. Uh, Similar to the children who know God, we saw that at the end of verse 13, fathers experience this well as well, but there's a difference. It it says that they have known him who has been from the beginning. And this phrase, from the beginning, is used elsewhere in the letter, which we've already covered. it, It refers to the message that was passed on about Jesus, the gospel. So they have known that. It it indicates that these people here, the fathers, their spiritual maturity reaches back many years and indicates a knowledge that's anchored in the past. So before we move on, I, I think it's important to address some misconceptions about spiritual growth uh, that we need to avoid. Uh, John MacArthur has listed uh, six misconceptions that I think are really important to understand, and I wanted to share them with you, because I learned something from this myself. This was very helpful, so I wanted to share it with you. So it's in your handout here. The first misconception is that spiritual growth does not determine the believer's standing in grace before God. So if we think about uh, new believers... Uh, young in the faith believers to mature believers, these truths are, are the same. That a believer standing in grace does not change as a result of being young in the faith versus being mature in the faith. Uh, that issue was settled at the cross, was it not? First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, uh, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. 
Secondly, spiritual growth does not affect God's love for believers. He doesn't love mature believers more than those who are less mature. And we think about that now at a a logical sense, we would completely agree with that. But we could get fall into that trap that someone who as a, a long time mature believer in the faith that somehow they're getting more of God's love than someone who is uh, new in their faith. That's just not true. Remember, his love is not based on any individual merit. Titus 3.5 said he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy. So we are all beneficiaries of his love as believers equally. Number three, spiritual growth is not measured by the calendar or time. Just because someone has been a believer for many years does not necessarily mean that they are more mature than those who have been believers for a shorter time. Now, many times this is true, uh, and, but not always. Not always. Number four, spiritual growth, growth is unrelated to the amount of theological information believers know. It's possible for a Christian to have a lot of biblical and theological knowledge and still be spiritually immature. This can happen when that knowledge is received in the head, in the mind, but it's not applied in the heart out of obedience. So we're to take what we know and what we learn to apply it in our lives in obedience to Christ. Number five, spiritual growth has nothing to do with outwardly successful ministry activity. Successful ministry activity. Now, while being a contributor to a successful ministry has many benefits, uh, it does not necessarily, it's not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity and wisdom. Again, many times it is, but we don't want to hang our hat on that as a requirement for spiritual maturity, right? And number six, spiritual growth is not mystical, sentimental, or psychological. It's not mystical, sentimental, or psychological. Spiritual growth does not come from an emotional experience. Rather, It results from regularly taking God's word in, his truth, his word, believing it, and applying it. So I really appreciated those lists from from, uh, Dr. MacArthur. I think it's just helpful to remind ourselves of those things. Now, uh, let's move on to the last three verses that we're going to cover this morning, verses 15 through 17. And we're going to go back to the topic of love, but it's a different kind of love. This is the love of the world. This is the love that God hates. John begins this section with a command in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. He uses this term world here, Uh, six times in this passage. Pretty key word to make sure we understand. 
And with this, he, he doesn't mean God's creation of the world, uh, nor does he actually uh, mean the world of people for whom Christ died. So this term world can mean different things. But instead, he's referring to the invisible spiritual system of evil that's in the world. It's governed by Satan. It's the spectrum of beliefs and attitudes that are opposed to God. Uh, It's the unredeemed world that lies in darkness and under God's judgment. That's the world that he's talking about. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, he or she is no longer identified with that world. Right? Colossians 1.13 says, Believers have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, in the, the remaining verses, we find reasons why believers are not to love the world. And the first reason that believers are not to love the world is because of who believers are, of who they are. Here we're seeing John use contrasts again. He didn't, he didn't take a lot of time off of his contrasts. He took a little pause And now we're going back to some contrast. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are inherently incompatible. They're opposed to one another. Because believers are forgiven, remember in verse 12, and they have a relationship with the Father, they cannot love the world. The world competes for the love of Christians, doesn't it? And one cannot truly love both it and the Father at the same time. They're incompatible. James told his readers in chapter 4, verse 4 of James, friendship with the world is what? Enmity or hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in verse 16, now we learn the reason for this incompatibility. He lays it out. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the second reason that believers are not to love the world is because of what the world does. Here we see it in vivid terms, don't we? The weapons the world uses to seduce people into joining its side. These weapons are part of our sinful nature, even as believers. And I found this interesting in my, in my reading that the same weapons, these same weapons, slew Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3.6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Boastful pride of life. I don't know if that's uh, an intentional correlation, but I found it helpful to understand this is not anything new. right? Even to John's readers. However, on the other side, these same weapons were also conquered by Christ. Right? The second Adam. His temptation in the wilderness... Luke 4 describes that the devil enticed him to tell this stone to become bread. Lust of the flesh. And then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, tempting Jesus with the lust of the eyes. And finally, from the pinnacle of the temple, 
the devil challenged him, right? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for here, from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Boastful pride of life. But as we know, even all of that could not lead Jesus to sin. So real quick, let's, let's look at each of these categories of sins. So the first is the lust of the flesh. Uh, another translation says the cravings of sinful man. Here the lust of the flesh appeals to our appetites. Our appetites. The, the idea of flesh here, it refers to humanity in general, but specifically as it stands in contrast or opposition to God. And the, number two, the lust of the eyes or the desire of the eyes. This lust of the eyes appeals to our affections. Our affections. The eyes are a window to the mind, right? It, it, which sinful desires can enter in through our eyes. And then the boastful pride of life. Another translation says, boasting of what he has and does. The boastful pride of life appeals to our ambitions. This is sinful pride or arrogance with no dependence on God. Who is the focus of the prideful person? Me, myself, and I. Right? Where does the glory go? It goes to self and not to God. I uh, actually was reminded of a, of, of a scene in Finding Nemo. <laughs> when Nemo's father and Dory are trying to escape the seagulls. Do you remember that scene? Do you remember that scene when all the seagulls are coming in? What are the seagulls crying out? Mine, mine, mine. Right? It's all about me. Selfish. In verse 17, though, John concludes this section. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the third reason that believers are not to love the world is because of the wor- where the world is going. So John contrasts this present world with the world to come. Right? The world we live in now is passing away. It's doomed along with all of its desires. Uh, one commentator said the world will inevitably be dissolved and cease to be. Back in verse 8, John says the darkness is passing away. Here it's the world that's passing away. In Christ, the true light is ushering in life. He's ushering in eternal life. Uh, But true believers who abide in God's will, and this indicates an ongoing, keeping on doing, will share in his eternal nature. Um, I'm running out of time. I'll leave the the last uh, quote there from Zane Hodges for you to read. It's a good one too. But I'm going to finish up with just a few key points, some takeaways here for us as we think about what we just read. First, true followers of Jesus will have assurance in their salvation because they know, love, and obey him. Right? These are the keys of assurance. Pastor Kevin gave me this next one. Obedience confirms sonship. Disobedience robs 
assurance. Just a nice way to put it real short and sweet. We don't seek assurance for assurance sake, right? We don't obey just for the goal of being obedient. We obey because of what God has done for us, and then assurance comes as a result. And as we remember that little passage of um, promise and encouragement from John here in the middle of this passage, to remind ourselves, no matter where you are in your Christian journey, your spiritual maturity, as a believer, you're standing before God is settled, you're justified because of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. The world is passing away, but our salvation is forever. And then, lastly, those who truly love and follow Christ must not fall in love with the world. Uh, with the things of the world, but rather with the Father who gives them everything they need. Those are the key points coming out of here. And then lastly, just a few questions for you to think about and meditate on. How can you remind yourself of the grace that's yours in Christ that will fuel you to joyful obedience? Is that, is that a challenge? Uh, can I make a suggestion? Read the book of Ephesians. Consider reading that. It highlights how we've been reconciled to Christ how we have been united with him and with the church and that we are to live as a new people. So this is very helpful, I think, to, to understand that and to just get another perspective on it. And then can you identify with any of the misconceptions about spiritual growth? Uh, those, I think, are really good reminders for us. Make sure that we don't fall into the trap uh, of that thinking. And then lastly... Uh, spend some time reflecting on verse 16. Are there any areas in your life that, where these temptations are waging war for you? Uh, remember, as believers, we're to be continually confessing and repenting. Remember last week, 1 John 1, 9. And also remember, as we ended last week, chapter 2, verse 2, that we have Christ our advocate with the Father, the propitiation for our sins. Right? That is... Uh, our blessed hope. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your inerrant and infallible word that's as true and applicable today as it was when it was originally written. We, We praise you that you've enabled us by your grace and through your spirit to obey you. And by that obedience, you grant us assurance. You give us a love for you and for your will and and not for the world. And may we continue to grow into the likeness of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.